This is God's word, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim and give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor together, a great company. They shall return here with weeping. They shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and he and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. 
And Judah and all its cities shall dwell together there, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beasts. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can, can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the, for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gareb and shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we, we thank you especially for chapter 31. After all of our labor through Jeremiah, uh, the, the difficulty of what we have seen uh, that was, was foretold that would come to this people to now hear these words familiar to many of us, good, refreshing words of hope that we know, we know they're there, Lord, but then when we get to them, they, they revive our soul because we know that there's hope for us. Just as they looked forward to the coming Messiah, even though we look back to his coming, we still look forward to his second coming when all will be made right, when everything will be as it should, when all sin and death is removed forever, we long for that day. So would you restore in us great hope as we look and consider your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I know that was a long one to stand through, and normally when passages are that long, I tell you, you know, sit. But I just couldn't for chapter 31 of Jeremiah. I felt like we've waited and waited, waited so long to get to this passage that I hoped you'd be able to stand. And I will just say that you'll be glad you stood that long because we have a lot of work to cover. Uh, There's so much here. It's not going to be super long. I I mean, we do have the Lord's Supper today, but there is a lot to cover. 
And so I'm going to apologize at the beginning that this, it's not going to seem as smooth, uh, but I'm going to be intentionally brief in moving through each section so that we see what is here, but so that we're able to get through it. Because providentially, the Lord has caused this passage. This was not my planning, although I'm very grateful that we're, we're at chapter 31 on a Sunday that we're coming to the table of the Lord. And I didn't want to divide up this and push the end of chapter 31 to next Sunday because I feel like it all just fits together so well. And so with that said, we're in the book of consolation in Jeremiah. It began in chapter 30. It continues on through 31 on into 33. This book of comfort that after all the message that Jeremiah brings uh, to the people, words of judgment, words of coming discipline and, and future exile as Babylon would come and carry them away, that here we come to this passage uh, in, in the book of comfort that speaks of a hope that there's going to be restoration. A new thing that he mentions in verse 22 is then called the new covenant in verses 31 and following. It's the only place in the Old Testament that the phrase new covenant is used, although the new covenant is certainly taught and expressed in other passages in the Old Testament. It's the only place we see that. Of course, when we come to the New Testament, called the new covenant, that's where it got its name, uh, we call it the New Testament. We see the new, the new covenants fulfilled. Uh, Jesus made this clear when at the Last Supper he declared, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so he comes not only bringing the new covenant, fulfilling the old covenant, but fulfilling all the new covenant for us as well. We come as recipients by grace alone. And yet there's more. There's more than just the fact that he's ushered in a new covenant because the new covenant then brings with it a future, something that's far off for us. We don't know how far, but it's in the future. It's not yet come. And that is his return or consummation when everything is finally made right. We read of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 at a time when we will be with our God forever. So that phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people, we know that now only in part. Because although we are God's people, we don't always act like it. But when we are with him in heaven, sin, death, removed forever, we will know in full what it means face to face with our God forever. And certainly that uh, what is expressed in verse 34 about not needing a teacher for everyone will know him. That's something that is not yet to come. Those days are not yet here. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for a teacher for we will all know the Lord. So what I'm trying to say in this introduction then is that we see all three of the horizons in this passage. We see that that first horizon, that immediate context, the hearers would have understood that God is going to deliver them from exile in Babylon. He's going to bring them back to the land. And that's how they would have heard this message. But they hear in this message that there is more to come, you know, like the info commercial song, but wait, there's more, right? I mean, there's more to come. They hear this. They don't know it the way we know it. We look back and we see how Christ has fulfilled it. They wouldn't have understood it in the way that we do. But that second horizon points to redemption, the coming of the Messiah, when sin would finally be atoned for. So everything in that, in that initial covenant that pointed the law, the sacrificial system, the temple worship, all of that was not fulfillment. It was all pointing to Christ. Christ comes and fulfills all of that. So we don't have the sacrificial system any, anymore because he, he atoned for our sins, died for our sins once and for all. So we see that second horizon 
as well. And then we see the third horizon, the new heavens and the new earth when the covenant is finally realized. So if you were with us in Sunday school this morning, we talked about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so what we see here is that redemption and restoration in each of these horizons. Now, with with the horizons in mind, and we, we've, we've talked about that, if you Imagine horizon, or if you imagine being in an airplane, you know, you're, you're up high, you can, you can see further away. That's what prophecy does. And so often what we see in prophecy is there's an immediate fulfillment, something that's coming in the very near future, and then something that's further off. And we see this not just in Jeremiah, but in other prophecies as well. So that's what I'm speaking of here with these three, uh, three horizons. Now, I do want to mention also the idea of new. What, what is meant here by new? Some come to the idea of new and think of this as almost like a plan B, that God, um, you know, whoops, what's happened? What am I going to do? That he's in heaven wringing his hands with worry at what man has done, and now I've got to come up with a different plan. That's not what new is expressing here. Uh, God knew before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1 tells us, God had his plan of redemption in place. It's not a plan B. It's also not a renewal simply, although it does involve parts of renewal to it. It is something new, but it doesn't forget the old. It's not a rebranding. It's not a refresh. It is a new covenant, but it doesn't neglect or forget the previous covenant. In fact, it doesn't dismiss it, but builds upon it. Jesus completes or fulfills the old uh, covenant. He extends it, doesn't he? We are now grafted in. Uh, we, 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 we don't uh, go to a temple and sacrifice animals. Um, you know, he, it, the extension of it is now for the nations. It goes to the whole earth. It's not limited to a geography. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to go to a temple to worship. We worship here together. God indwells us, yet the law of the Lord remains. It's not done away with. The law of the Lord is forever, and it serves a good purpose on our behalf. It reveals to us who God is. It shows us our need for salvation, and it also protects us. So the law is still good, but the new covenant is better. We can say that the new covenant is better because the writer of Hebrews tells us that. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is it is acted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, and then the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. I won't read it because we've already read it, but there's this quote from Jeremiah 31 that he then inserts there in chapter 8, the longest Old Testament quote in anywhere in the New Testament. And then after he quotes Jeremiah, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We might think here, and this is not a perfect metaphor, but we might think in terms of software operating systems. We know that since the uh, invention or, or, or the, uh, since personal computers have become ubiquitous in all of our homes, there have been many operating systems and versions of software, and some software programs are now obsolete. There are some that don't serve a purpose anymore. We don't use them anymore. There are other versions of software that have risen to the top. Or we might think in terms of, uh, if you think of a spreadsheet program, ledger sheets, I, I would think there's probably somebody still using them somewhere, but they're all but obsolete. Why? Because there's a better way to do it uh, using spreadsheets on a computer. Not a perfect metaphor, but hopefully you can see this is what is being described here. That God has forgiven our sins in Christ, that he has given us his spirit 
to live within our hearts and that he has grafted us in. All this and more is better. I don't think the original hearers could comprehend all that was theirs, all that was coming in Christ. They, they would have uh, uh, struggled to, to know. Obviously, we look at it in retrospect and we see what Christ has fulfilled. For them, it was about the immediate understanding of deliverance from Babylon, that they would be returned to the land, that they would see themselves restored, their nation restored, and the temple rebuilt. But it's good for us to stop and remember here that just as they could not comprehend what await, what was coming in the future. So we cannot comprehend all that is ours that we will one day know in his second coming. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2.9. So beginning then now with verse 2, look at this. At that time, declares the Lord, we're speaking of a prophecy. He addresses it to all the clans of Israel. Uh, he uses the covenant language Uh, the original covenant language, I will be their God, they will be my people. It's addressed to the two divided nations, the two divided kingdoms, Judah and Israel, and it describes them being brought back together. In verse 2, the people are described as those who survived the sword, found grace in the wilderness. There's a hint here with this wilderness language that would remind them back of, of the, the Exodus account, the deliverance through the wilderness after God uh, uh, brought them across the Red Sea. And yet the sword points them to their own exile, that they would be taken by the sword or under the sword off and carried to uh, Babylon and Assyria, uh, Judah and Israel. And so in this is this uh, help for them to see that another Exodus is coming, that the Exodus The Passover meal that they celebrated every year, all of it was pointing to another exodus that was coming. Now, for them, it was deliverance from Babylon, and that's what they were looking forward to. But we can see that it points even further down the road. There's something even greater coming, not deliverance from earthly slavery, but deliverance from enslavement to sin and its consequence, death. The Exodus account, though, does serve as a pattern of God's redemption throughout history, including the Passover meal that was celebrated every year that becomes the Lord's Supper that we come to now. In it, we see God's ultimate redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 3, the Lord's salvation extends to the people in exile. The Lord appeared to him far away. The people of God could not wonder. They could not be carried, even in judgment, too far from him for, him to be, uh, for, for them to be redeemed. Rather, We see two themes that emerge in this. First, God is the actor. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have continued my faithfulness to you. I will build you. And then we see the theme again. The word again appears again several times here, echoing God's faithfulness. God's saying to his people, I've done it again, and I will do it again because I am faithful. My love never ends. No matter how far uh, you, you wander, no matter how far you stray, I will continue to pursue you. Overtones of the prodigal, right? The, 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 the prodigal son and that parable that we read in Jesus' earthly ministry. We see that not just in these initial verses, but throughout this when he speaks of Ephraim being his only son. Just as the prodigal son was adorned upon his return with a robe and how he was celebrated with a feast, so we see the people of God built up, adorned with celebration in the rebuilding of their land upon their return. Verse 
verse 6 points to the culmination of their restoration, that they will go to Zion in an act of worship. This will be their response. They want to worship God. And this is, this is expressed further in verses 7 and following. They, they raise shouts of gladness to their redeeming God. They want to worship God for his deliverance. The return is described in verse 8 as God bringing them back, not only from exile, but from the farthest parts of the earth, pointing us both to the first horizon as well as to the second, the farthest parts of the earth. Think of redemption going to all the nations, that there will be no bounds. We see that it includes everyone. And here he, he includes the most vulnerable, the, the blind, the lame, the women who are in labor. In other words, it's, it's the idea of even people that you can't imagine being saved because they're somehow inhibited. That This is not going to stop God. And the message to all of us is there's nothing you can do or that has been done to you or that you've experienced that will stop God's love from pursuing you. He loves you. He is seeking you. From the least to the greatest, if you are his, you will be delivered. The sovereignty of God is again emphasized in that he will make their paths straight, leading them by brooks of water, echoing the sentiment found in Psalm 23. I've mentioned a number of times through our study in Jeremiah that I think Jeremiah was meditating on some of the Psalms because so much of that thought pattern comes out in his writing, and I think it does here as well. Israel is called the firstborn son, Ephraim, Again, bringing to mind the prodigal. We see that there is true repentance. With weeping and pleas for mercy, God will bring them back from their waywardness. And they are called then to extend this message to the nations, to the coastlands far away. Excuse me. Bringing the gospel to all nations, hinting again at that second horizon. They are not able to deliver themselves from hands too strong for them. Verse 11, pointing them to their complete dependence on Yahweh as their deliverer and redeemer. And then their return is characterized by singing and dancing as they shine with the radiance of the goodness of the Lord. Verse 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. All three horizons appear here uh, for us to see. The restoration from exile, that's what the people would have understood. The forgiveness of sins that would come in the coming Messiah, that's how we see it. We understand this in looking back. But we also look forward to his return when all the sadness but will be wiped away. You know, ever real, you know, when you're reading through Old Testament prophecy and you see this and you're like, I haven't experienced all sadness being wiped away. This is pointing forward. That day has not yet come. We do know sadness. We do experience grief in this life because sin and its effects are still here. But a day is coming, the Lord says, when all of us will be fully satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then in verse 15, the, the, the metaphor shifts from that of a son to Rachel as the mother of Israel. And it shows her grieving and weeping and lamenting. You remember from our study in Genesis that Rachel longed to have children. She's the one who said, give me children or I die. And God did give her children. But then in giving birth to Benjamin, she did die. She died in childbirth. Before she died, though, she named him the son of my trouble. Uh, his name was changed by his dad after that. But that's how, that's how Benjamin came into the scene. And so in this passage, we see her grieving figuratively. She, Rachel's dead. She's not alive at this point. But figuratively, she represents through her memory uh, the waywardness, uh, the sinning of the people as they, as they have been judged and scattered in exile. And to this, God declares in verse 17, there is hope for your future. 
and your children shall come back. Ephraim was the grandson of Rachel, and here represents symbolically God's people, and it is noted that he truly repented. You have disciplined me, he says. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. This is what we've been waiting for, right? God has been calling his people to turn, 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 turn. That's the message of Jeremiah, the word he uses so many times, turn, repent. And yet here now we see this, it's prophetic, it hasn't happened yet as he pens these words, but this forward-looking scene of Ephraim, the firstborn, the people of God, finally turning in repentance. But why? Did it, was it that they finally got it? They finally figured it out? Is that, is that all we need uh, in this life is just to, to figure it out? Are we special because we have and other people haven't? No, it's because the Lord remembered him. The Lord sought him. Listen to verse 20. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy upon him. God has pursued us in his unending love. Now, Matthew quotes this passage from Jeremiah 31 about Rachel uh, and saying that this lament that's, that Jeremiah uh, accounts here is fulfilled when Herod slaughtered all of the children, the first, the, the sons, uh, under the age of two after Jesus was born. And so even in this, as Matthew tells us that this was a fulfillment, we see the, the multiple horizons again of how this passage is fulfilled. Again, immediate deliverance from Babylon, but more fully in the coming of the Messiah. The section closes in verse 22 with kind of a puzzling phrase. It says, For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. We understand the new thing, the new covenant, but what is this idea of a woman encircling a man? Well, as you might imagine, with all troubling uh, verses that, that uh, uh, you know, people uh, have various opinions on what they are. Um, I, I don't want to unfold all the different interpretations. I think that it, given the context... Uh, it's, we're talking new covenant here. So what do we see that's, that's vaguely resembling any of this? Well, first, if you go back to the promise of the new covenant, the promise of redemption in the new covenant in Genesis 3.15, the promise was that the seed of the woman would come to crush the head of the serpent. That was the hope of God's people from creation, from the fall. And so they were looking for that deliverer uh, all along, that, that, that one would come. And so there, there, I think there's certainly that idea. I think the idea of uh, this deliverer coming prophesied by, by Isaiah as being born of a virgin, uh, coming through the seed of the woman. Again, uh, this is how the deliverer would come. I think that this is, is, uh, is what is being spoken of here in this idea of a new thing, a woman encircling a man. In verses 23 to 30, the focus here is on the fact that Judah and Israel will be restored, these divided kingdoms. The initial words of Jeremiah's ministry are spoken of as fulfilled here. You remember from chapter 1, I won't reread it because the words are almost the same, uh, but you remember from in, the introduction of Jeremiah in his ministry, he was sent to, to, you know, to do what? To pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and then to build up and to plant. And so what is spoken of in verse 28, and it shall come to pass that God says, I will watch as I have watched over the plucking up, the tearing down, the judgment so I will watch over the building and the planting, declares the Lord. He is going to restore. And the people and the land are rebuilt together. And there is an emphasis here not just on the physical, the land. That's often what trips us up is that we tend to look at the, the temporal or the earthly. And there is an emphasis clearly here on the spiritual 
they had convinced themselves that they were they were special, that they were lucky, almost like a superstition is God chosen God's chosen people. And you remember early on in Jeremiah's message, they thought that God would never judge them because they were they had Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem was the temple, and God would not allow nothing to happen to the temple. And so they came up with this idea that they were being judged for the sins of others, the sins of previous generations. It wasn't their own fault. And so the Lord makes it clear here that everyone shall die for his own iniquity, that we are responsible, accountable. He uses the metaphor of sour grapes. Have you ever eaten a sour grape? You know this, right? This was, this was something that they could connect to a very agrarian society. You know, when the fruit begins to grow and the temptation when you're walking by. We had grapevines on the property where I grew up and you'd mow between them and the temptation to, to pick them before they were ready. And if you fell for that and they weren't ready, you discovered what this setting the teeth on edge, right? It feels like your teeth are being etched. The worst was we had, we had an orchard of different fruit trees. We had persimmon trees. And there's something special about an unripe persimmon. I've never experienced anything quite. I mean, a sour grape's one thing, but an unripe persimmon. And I will confess that we, sick, twisted children that we were, and he did eat them. We, I mean, we didn't force him to eat them, but we did enjoy feeding our horse um, persimmons. And he looked, because he looked like Mr. Ed when we fed him unripe persimmons. He did this mouth all funny. Well, this was something that the people of Judah could understand. They could understand what it meant to have their teeth set on edge by this unripe fruit. In other words, it was the fruit of their own doing. It was the fruit that they were being judged for. They weren't being disciplined for the sins of someone else. It was their own doing. And then we come to verse 31. This is what we've been waiting for uh, all along. Or maybe it's just me, but I'm, I'm just really excited about 31 because this is, this is what all of this has been building up. Behold, the days are coming. The Lord promises a new covenant that he will make with his people, both the house of Israel and the house of Judah being brought back together. In verses 31 to 34, the phrase, I will, appears seven times. You've seen this in other passages before. Anytime we see a word repeated, we're we're looking as it's a theme. So God is making uh, some emphasis here on the fact he is the actor. He alone is doing the work. I will establish the covenant. It will not be like the one, the original one, when he says that, that uh, he brought his people through the, the, the wilderness and, and gave it from Sinai, the giving of the law. And this covenant, uh, th- th- this original covenant wasn't a bad covenant. It wasn't a problem, but it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it didn't have the power to save. The law could not save. And so... The law served a purpose. It still serves a purpose. It is good, uh, but it was unable to save the people because why? We're not able to keep it. Our inability is that we cannot match God's holy standard. We fail. We were born sinners, and we sin. No one has to teach us how to sin. You know my line about that. If you don't believe it, volunteer for the nursery. You know, you don't have to teach. We come into this world pre-programmed to be selfish and to demand what we want. So the new covenant that God was announcing through Jeremiah would do something that we could not do for ourselves, and that is bring deliverance from sin. The law here is promised to be written on our hearts, written on the hearts of the people. This was the same language that when the law was given and and, and recorded in Deuteronomy, we've referred back to this passage several times in Jeremiah. It says that God promises, I will circumcise their hearts. That's the language here. 
I will put it on their hearts, etch it on their hearts. Covenantal language again used, I will be their God. They shall be my people, verse 33. And this happens because God forgives their iniquity and promises to remember their sin no more. All three horizons come into view here, right? We see the immediate deliverance from exile. That's what the people were looking for. We see the coming of the Messiah to atone for sin. That's something I don't think they could have even imagined. They were still looking at it from a sacrificial system. uh, But all of this was pointing forward to one who would come as the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, who would atone for sins once and for all. But we see this even pointing further down the road. There is a day coming. When we will no longer need a teacher. Even now we do still need to. We all need teachers. right? We all need to be instructed. We all need to be corrected. But there is a day coming when we will no longer need a teacher in the new heavens and the new earth. And for at that future time, all of us who are trusting in Christ alone, we will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And this is the great hope of the gospel for us. That no matter who we are, where we're from, what we've accomplished or how we failed... God promises to save all who are his. And so this, is a ser- this serves as a call to believe, to everyone who would hear, that, they, that, that you might respond to the redeeming God, that through Christ, who has died to bring us from death into life, that you might trust him by faith for the full forgiveness of sins. He promises to cleanse us, that I will remember your sins no more. Jesus came that we might have new life here and now, but also perfect new life in the future with him forever. Jeremiah then closes out the passage with the promise of preservation. Preservation for the people of God. He speaks of a fixed order that will remain. uh, that, 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 That creation will remain for all of his purposes to come true. You know, all of us have lived long enough to hear rumors and rumors about the end of the world. And it's easy to get caught up in that. But listen, God is going to make sure that creation remains until all of his purposes are achieved. He's made that promise uh, from the beginning. Go back to the Noahic covenant. Uh, He makes makes it clear that his purposes will stand. Uh, so, So don't get caught up in the fear that the world is going to end tomorrow. God will bring an end when he determines to bring an end. And when that comes, we'll be okay because we'll be with him forever. So the immediate horizon is the uniting of uh, Israel and Judah. And uh, then the, the second horizon, of course, is when the Messiah would come. But the, 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 the preservation was essential for the Messiah to come, that nothing would prevent. Because what? He promised it would come through the seed of the woman. It would come through the ordinary means, through the created order, that this Messiah would come The gospel hope, though, wasn't simply for the Jewish people. We see their preservation as nearly miraculous. But Jews are not saved because they're Jews. Jews are called to put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. So we ought to have a commitment to evangelizing our Jewish friends. Uh, they, they, They need to hear the gospel. They need to trust in Christ alone as the Messiah. But this is good news for us because we have been grafted in. We have been brought in to the family of God. That the, the, the hope of the gospel wasn't simply about a geography or an ethnicity, but was to go for, to all the nations. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. Because God promised to Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. Paul explains in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
This is how Abraham was saved, not through keeping the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's the same way that anyone has ever been saved, just by faith alone. And then in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the new covenant is not replacing Israel, but engrafting the Gentiles into the promised people of God. So it's extending, it's expanding. We who are believers are now sons of Abraham according to the promise. The promise is grace. The promise is the covenant. The way anyone is saved, past, present, or future, is by grace alone through faith alone. That has always been and always will be. So this is true for anyone. Jesus expressed this reality of the new covenant in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We'll circumcise their hearts. We'll come and dwell. The, the, the final uh, part of the chapter is, is this description of the city. And while the city would be restored and we could talk about the geographical points, we're not going to do that because while this points to restoration and this first horizon for the people as they're coming out of exile in Babylon, we all know this is pointing to something greater, right? I mean, you see it when you read it, that there's something more important than just this city that now doesn't exist anymore. has been torn down and rebuilt. The description of the city points us to the second horizon as we gather for worship each week. Hebrews, but you have come to the Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness, <clears throat> or the spirits, the, the, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What we do every week in gathering for worship is described here and is made possible because the city of God is now, we're given access to because of what Christ has done for us. And yet we know there's more, right? There's that third horizon of the city uh, that we see in Revelation 20, 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This new covenant is good news. It's good news for the people who are in exile who would be reading the message of, of Jeremiah as it was recorded on the scrolls, that there was hope for them, that God was going to restore them. But it is good news for us and that this is what was foretold, that what is now ours in Christ from before time began uh, is this redemption that God has accomplished. He is unfolding it before all people throughout all generations, building and adding to what he began to bring about the glorious ends, which we can only know in part, but will one day we will know in full, and it will be better than we can ever imagine. In the New Testament, we see this phrase, the new covenant, used seven times. It's mostly used in Hebrews. That's why I've quoted Hebrews so much this morning, but of course we see it at the institution of the Last Supper. And we now come to that table where Jesus took what was an ordinary Passover meal, a meal that they celebrated every year. Uh, it was in many ways routine. If you'd done something every year as a child grew up, as the disciples came together, it was very routine until it wasn't. 
because Jesus transformed and showed how the Exodus deliverance in the Passover demonstrated what God was going to do, not in delivering them from earthly slavery or human slavery, but delivering them uh, from the ultimate slavery, slavery to sin and death. And so before their very eyes, Jesus showed them not only was he the fulfillment of the new covenant, but he was fulfilling it now. He was, he was there to do it now. This was no longer a future event. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so as we come to the table today, remembering what was promised in Jeremiah 31 is now ours because Jesus has died. And it has been proven to be the most powerful salvation because he rose from the dead. It's proven to be true because he is now resurrected. The people of God in Jeremiah's day couldn't grasp what we now know on this side of the cross. They simply trusted God, yes, to save them from captivity and yes, from saving them from sin. That's why they had the sacrificial system. They understood their problem of sin, even if they didn't grasp it fully. But today we know what God has done uh, through Christ is done once and for all. He has saved us from our sins. Yet there's much more that awaits us, more than we can grasp. And so may our faith rest on his unchanging grace that whatever we're facing or walking through in this moment in life, we have a future that awaits us that is full of hope and joy. No matter what we've done in our past, what we'll do in our future, God's new covenant promises forgiveness as we look to Christ. And may our faith grow and that he has written his law in our hearts. He has given us his spirit to live within us to convict us of sin, to comfort us in our suffering, and to teach us as we grow in grace. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here. And... uh, in our minds, we, we, we really can't grasp all that is ours in Christ. But, but we see it and, and, and we latch on just a little bit more each time as we peer into your word. We see that there's, there's more than we could ever have imagined. And so I pray that you would help us to, to take hold of all that is ours in the gospel of Jesus. That it is indeed good news that we have been saved from our sins, saved in this life to grow in grace and knowledge, but saved from the wrath to come as well, that we might have strength to endure, that we might live as unto you, lives pleasing. Would you do that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.